Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today. It's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. Greg Demopoulos here with this week's crypto podcast for The Constant Investor. And today it's a treasure trove of interviews from the World Blockchain Forum in Dubai that I attended and The Constant Investor was a media partner of. Dr. Noah Rafford is the Chief Operating Officer at the Dubai Future Foundation. In a few years' time, Dubai will put 100% of government transactions on the blockchain. Dr. Rafford is one of the brains behind it all, so I had a chat to him to find out how it's expected to pan out. The original intention behind all of our work in blockchain is just to make people's lives easier, to make government function more effectively and more efficiently, and to take advantage of the opportunities this technology enables. Um, as my colleague Mohammed Shao from the Department of Economic Development gave a great example when he spoke just after me, uh, when you do anything really with the government of Dubai, much like any government and city government around the world, you often have to take copies of the same document to 20 different places, get it stamped 20 different times, and by the time you get back, the rules have changed, so you have to start all over again. It's just kind of ridiculous, especially in the 21st century. Uh, so luckily we have um, leadership that was committed to exploring new ways of doing this and developed a series of pilot projects through our Global Blockchain Council that validated the approach of blockchain as a as sort of information exchange tool. And, we, and uh, the leadership of the UAE thought, right, let's do this. Let's be ambitious about it. Put 100% commitment to blockchain by 2020. And we're now rolling through 37 different pilot projects which have been completed. We're about to have 20 live services come online, everything from buying a car to registering your work visa to buying a house to exchanging, uh, changing jobs. Just the day-to-day stuff of life, which should be simple, seamless, frictionless, and easy. Now, a lot of governments around the world are still quite speculative about this technology, while the government of Dubai seems, and the UAE seems really into it, embracing it. Do you think that this will begin to cause somewhat of a domino effect around the world and people will look to Dubai and the UAE for help in creating their own systems going forward? I think that that's actually part of the uh, part of the intention with our work here. The UAE has always been a early adopter and a big risk taker when it comes to uh, developing or cultivating new opportunities, particularly around technology. Um, and part of the original strategy for Dubai's blockchain strategy was international partnership so that we have the opportunity and the scale and the resources to pilot these things at the, at the citywide or countrywide scale in a way that can develop lessons for other countries uh, around the world. And we're open to sharing that. We've learned a lot from our peers internationally and we're in constant dialogue with people uh, at, at different stages of this journey. And in terms of the national blockchain strategy here in the UAE, they're committed, I believe, to 50% 50 of government transactions by 2021. Can you just run me through some of the four pillars that uh, those transactions will come under? Sure. And just by way of context, sort of the governance structure of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates is the, is the, na the nation, right? So it has a federal government body with federal minister ministerial positions, which are responsible for goods, services, and transactions across the whole country. But the UAE as a country is composed of seven different emirates. Uh, think of them as sort of large municipalities or states, essentially, with a lot more uh, sovereignty. And so each 
Emirate has its own services and functions as well, and those complement and overlap each other in many different ways. So taking this to the national level means that the lessons and experiences we've had here can start to be shared across the country uh, and start to address some of the more f uh, fundamentally challenging aspects, right? Take identity, for example. You know, you're issued a passport by a country, so identity verification and authentication is fundamentally a sovereign activity, and that then cascades through everything from finance to KYC to getting driver's license to what you're able to buy a house, what jobs you're able to get, et cetera. Uh, so by engaging with this at a national level, you're able to really tackle the really serious issues around information exchange and the digitization of uh, core documents in a way which is uh, profoundly powerful. So the aspiration uh, is to have 50% of all government, federal government transactions on the blockchain by 2021, which is the 50th anniversary of the country. And that, of course, will complement the activities that will already be going on in Dubai around a 100% um, commitment to Dubai government activities. And the degree to which those synchronize will be developed over the coming months. Uh, but it's quite exciting to look at the development of this. And just in a practical sense, I live here in Dubai. I want to register my first car. How will this make my life easier? So that's where this interface becomes really interesting. So the four components of the federal strategy are looking at the figuring out the rules and regulations associated with this to govern it effectively, but also without too much of a hands-on approach. Um, to look at all of the sort of citizen-facing services, like buying a car, like buying a house, or renting a place, getting a job. The back-end infrastructure around energy, security, identity, etc. Um, and then the uh, international aspect of that, so ports, customs, goods, import, export, exchange, business creation, humanitarian aid. Underneath all of that is a profound uh, capacity building exercise around training not just blockchain developers, but all of the IT systems integration people that are going to have to figure out how this actually integrates with the existing services and all of the customers who are going to have to figure out how this impacts their business. So in your example, right, of buying a car, um, let's fast forward to when this is already complete, right? So you have your passport from Australia, you come into town, you get a job offer here, you want to create your company, all of your documents are, are digitized and scanned, you then have them on the, ha uh, you have those hashes, you're able to share those with the appropriate entities. So instead of having to take your education certificate, like your physical education certificate, uh, around to 20 different places, which is what I had to do when I moved to Dubai. I, my PhD is from MIT, but MIT as an institute wasn't on the list of approved universities. So, because it's an institute, not a university. So I had to take a single a sheet of the, my actual graduation diploma to get it to the US State Department. I was living in London at the time, so then the home, foreign office in the UK to the UA Embassy there, get it validated and, and, and tested throughout this process, and only then could I submit it, only then could my job approval get approved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So by digitizing that in a safe and secure way on the blockchain with then permissionable rights about who can access that, you don't even need to have access to the core data itself because most of the other services that are dependent upon that just need to check if you're legitimate or not, right? So it doesn't really matter where I went to school as long as I went to school and have the criteria necessary for the job. Same for buying a car, right? They don't need to know your children's names and all of the details associated with that. They just need to know that you have rights to buy this car, right? So you have a home. Doesn't even need to know where your home is. So that's why the blockchain is such an interesting example of this because you can do very simple checksums against the hash in a way which enables much more efficient exchange of information across government, in some ways breaking down all the different silos and barriers about who owns what data without actually having to share the underlying data, right? That's what's so profound about this. And so the experience, the user experience of buying a car, and I should mention that right now the Roads and Transportation Authority in Dubai is doing this for the entire vehicle supply chain from the moment a car enters the country to the moment it leaves. Every service contract, every sales transaction, all of, every maintenance opportunity, all these things are now going to be recorded on a blockchain so that you have detailed records of what happened where, who owns it, what not. And on top of that, once it's digitized, the cool thing is you can say, you can write smart contracts on top of that. So it's very easy just to say, okay, I'm buying your car. That's going to automatically renew my insurance, transfer the title to me, do all of the things associated with that, basically in a frictionless way. 
And just lastly, for those that believe this whole sector, blockchain, cryptocurrencies is all just hype and, you know, in a short while, it'll all so slowly just come crumbling down. What do you have to say to those people with those sort of thoughts? Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of, there are still a lot of failure points on the, on the pathway to developing this as a general purpose technology that's as widely used as the internet. So none of this is guaranteed. Having the weight of a nation like the UAE or the city of Dubai and all of our partners and uh, both multinational corporations and developers behind this helps to ensure, or helps to, I should say, increases the odds of success. We're creating this future together. But I think a lot of the anxiety around blockchain's general deployment is associated with cryptocurrency speculation. And that's why we're quite focused on blockchain as a general purpose information sharing technology, not a, not a exchange of financial value, even though that might be part of the system in the long run. So for those of you who are, who, who are saying this is just a fad or a bubble, whilst that might be the case for, certain, for some cryptocurrencies and altcoins, it's a little bit like saying that the internet itself was a fad or a bubble or like internal combustion engines are a bubble, right? Yes, there's things that will get in the way of deployment to their full scale, especially as it starts to hit the rubber starts to meet the road with the reality of organizational bureaucracies and stuff. But there's no doubt that the utility of this and the utility of things that will come after this and be built on this is quite quite uh, clear and well demonstrated. And that the countries and cities and companies which understand and embrace that before others are going to be the ones who are really creating the future. Colonel Saeed M. Al-Hajri is the director of the Cybercrime Department within the Criminal Investigation Department at Dubai Police Headquarters. I spoke to Saeed for an insight into what he does when it comes to blockchain-based ventures. We're here uh, trying to protect uh, the people and the uh, entrepreneurs from falling into uh, a fraud model. This is the main objectives of uh, us. And uh, we're trying to make... uh, the blockchain ecosystem as healthy as possible. And how long have you been looking at this space for in terms of looking at ICOs? Because it's still relatively new for a lot of companies, the ICO offerings. Yeah, the ICO offering is new. I looked, uh, I started looking at it uh, from the 2016. Uh, but the blockchain and uh, Bitcoin related applications which we, I don't call it uh, as currency, uh, uh, but as asset, because it has value over time, and uh, we think it, it is uh, holding a future. Uh, f- the, uh, from uh, blockchain and uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, we saw it uh, as a threat from 2012, uh, which, is, which was being used in the underground uh, economy, which uh, take uh, take us to this path. So we need to understand it more. And when we, last year and the year before, we found more and more crime happening uh, in the ICO forum. Uh, people make companies, fraud company, they take the people money, money and they run away. So we're trying to uh, come up with the uh, governance and regulate uh, Regulation uh, to protect both entrepreneurs. So, because we don't want to lose the opportunity also from using such technology. Uh, are there governments around the world looking to you for advice? Since I've not really heard of many other police departments uh, looking into this exact space. Oh, I'm sure there are police departments <laughs> are looking at uh. this place, but uh, I think we need to move faster and we need to coll- collaborate together in order to enhance the uh, legislation and governance 
to make good use of this technology because in Dubai, we're uh, as uh, our my governor uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, His Highness, uh, said 50% of uh, the government services will be based on blockchain. It is a promising technology, and we 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 we're, we're supporting. Uh, to make good use of it as opportunity for us. Do people that want to do an IC offering here in Dubai have to pass certain tests uh, by your department to get the tick of approval before they can go ahead? Yeah, we're looking here, uh, we're working uh, closely here with the legislators uh, from the higher com community in legislation in Dubai uh, and other uh, partners from the industry and from the government entities and the semi-government uh, in order to come up with raw model to uh, make this as smooth as possible uh, with protection of the people uh, interests also so uh, when uh, and i think this is go, uh, this will be fast because we're we're collaborating very fast and it will come up uh, by يعني, by the end of this year inshallah uh, with the new uh, form, inshallah, uh, if, 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 if everything uh, went smoothly, inshallah. And uh, maybe uh, they will have a special uh, uh, trade license uh, issuing in one of the registra registrators here uh, upon the agreement of the uh, government, uh, which, which uh, have uh, the check the checkup of each ICO, whether it's stake proof, if it, is it uh, work proof, uh, is it working. Uh, we will do the, uh, we will make this uh, process uh, uh, on this entity, do the hard work for the investors. So they don't go, uh, they don't need to be very uh, nerd uh, people to understand uh, the technical aspects of the ICOs. So, uh, because people need help on this me method. Nobody understand how blockchain work for average people. Uh, and this is a role for government to make it as easier as possible. And just lastly, are you able to give me an insight into some of the daily activities you and your team do in this space? Well, we, we, we try to uh, under, understand the new applications uh, of the blockchain. There are different applications now. It's evolving. Also exchange, uh, the exchange need to evolve and innovate new things to, uh, to keep up with this uh, trend. But the technology is very faster than what they're doing. Uh, the faster exchange who uh, develop uh, adoption of uh, this uh, assets it will be leading the market uh, in this ecosystem. Uh, and we're also looking for uh, frauders who's uh, misusing uh, the blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And we caught uh, two groups uh, in Dubai, which is doing uh, such frauds here in, uh, in Dubai. And we took them uh, to the court as uh, fraud cases. But it's... Uh, it's very important for uh, the people to do their uh, due diligence, their research, before trusting anybody in the internet or in, the, in this area. 
Jason King is the co-founder of Academy, the world's first accredited blockchain university. I spoke to Jason to find out how it all works. We train existing blockchain develop—I mean, existing software developers, full-stack developers—on blockchain best practices and make them from software developers into blockchain developers. And how long have you been running it for? Uh, going on a year now since we started. Um, we're a fully U.S. accredited university, and um, we're accredited by the Southern Association Southern Association of Colleges and Schools in the U.S. And uh, we, yeah, we started uh, basically almost a year ago, and um, and uh, we just finished. We just graduated our first cohort last month. Um, and we're, we'll be running cohorts all over the world. Um, Sofia, Bulgaria, Los Angeles, New York, Seoul, Tokyo, hopefully Dubai. So they're physical schools, not just online. Physical schools, yeah. Our, all of our online offerings will be coming out in probably this August, September timeframe of this year. Um, but right now, what we're teaching is so technical that um, you really... It's a lot easier to do it in person when you have someone that you can talk to directly. Um, and it's, it's a much faster pace when we can do it like that. On our online offerings, we'll teach the same curriculum, but it'll probably be, instead of it being four to six weeks, it'll probably be three to four months. So you have a longer time to sort of absorb all the material. And how many people have passed through your doors in the past year? Um, for, for specifically the Blockchain Academy, um, 150, 150 students have come through, um, 120 have graduated, and, um, and that's, we've basically just run one, one cohort so far. But uh, we're modeled to graduate 1,800 students in 2018 from that program. Um, but on the software development side, um, we, we currently have over 150,000 students just learning regular software development. And what have some of those students gone on to create in terms of cryptocurrencies or blockchain or where have they gone? Well, I mean, they graduated like three weeks ago, right? So, I mean, you're, you're kind of putting us under the gun as to what they've done. But, however, um, every one of our graduates that wanted a to get placement at a, at a place was able to get a job. So we have over 100% of placement for our, for our um, cohorts. And where did your inspiration in this space come from? Um, I've been in blockchain or Bitcoin since 2010, and um, I got well-known in the space for um, founding some of the first cryptocurrency-based charities, Sean's Outpost and Unsung.org. And um, basically, uh, early last year, I had a pro I had a, a um, I was given the opportunity to do a pilot program for the European Union um, on a distributed identity app for, for helping with, um, with feeding refugees in Greece. And when I tried to spec out getting the app built, and, and I've been in the space for, every, for a long time, and I know a ton of developers, I couldn't find one that had the availability to do it. And I mean, they were all like, Jason, this is a great idea, but you know, I've got a job, I've got like six jobs behind that, I'm working on these projects, I'm advising these companies. And, um, and we really dug in to see how bad this developer shortage was, and it's, it's terrible. It's like, currently there's 14 available jobs for every qualified blockchain developer. And so... As someone who's been in the space for a long time, if I couldn't get the talent I needed for my projects, I realized that, that there was almost no way that someone that was new to the space was ever going to get the engineering that they needed. And so we just set about trying to find a way to build some new talent. And so that's what we do at, at Academy is we, we build engineers. A lot of people think this is a very speculative space. Some people still call it all a scam. How can you help change their minds to show it's actually legitimate and it has legitimate purpose. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that's where the first things that I ever did in the space is that, you know, my company, Sean's Outpost, has fed over 167,000 meals to the homeless using exclusively cryptocurrency. So that was, you know, the less, least fortunate among us that were hungry that aren't hungry anymore. It's hardly a scam, right? And, you know, Unsung's done the same thing through an app that incentivizes people to deliver excess food to those in need and has fed almost a half a million meals to it, you know? So that's, that's not hard to, to pin down as a scam. Um, you know, I think 
I think it's, you know, on the cryptocurrency side of it, yeah, will there be scams? Absolutely. But are there scams run with the U.S. dollar or with, you know, AD or, you know, the euro? Absolutely, right? Because it's not about the currency. It's about the, you know, the asshole that's doing this with the currency. Um, but uh, I think that a lot of projects are going to bring a lot of uh, transparency and accountability to a lot of larger institutions and governments and things like that. And I think that alone is going to really sort of be the, the kicking off point where people go, oh, that's why they're doing this. It's for this, it's for this. I think that's going to be really where the impact comes in. And looking forward to the next five, 10 years, I know it's always hard to do, but where do you truly see the blockchain space going then? Um, I think we're starting the beginning curve of mainstream adoption in terms of like, when I got into the space, like I would be very lucky if one in 10,000 people knew what a Bitcoin was. And now pretty much everybody knows what it is or has heard of it, right? Um, so I think, you know, that's great. I think within five years, people will understand sort of like the internet, that blockchain's here to stay, that it's gonna be a part of your everyday life in some capacity. And, um, and it'll just sort of be like email or you know or a web browser and the people will just understand that, that, that this is going to become part of my day, daily life Powell Alvin Nazarok is the CEO and co-founder of Blockchain Hotels a chain of hotels set to all be based on the blockchain sound a little strange well here's Powell to explain his vision it's it's all about to, to create of oasis for the uh, digital nomads crypto people and, uh, and all the pioneers, innovators uh, all around the world, special places connected with fun and innovation uh, off the grid, sustainable, um, done with the innovative module building structures. Uh, so this network that, that we are, that these pioneers can have this amazing freaking places all over the world. So that's, that's uh, I think, the main, the main kind of idea. And they, they, they're not co-living spaces, they're more short term. Of course, if somebody wants to stay long-term, he or she, or she can. And it has a co-working, slides from every level to the lobby, slip and fly and all the kind of cool stuff, secret rooms. Yeah, so definitely a little bit reinventing of the hotel industry, how it's look like and how it's functioning right now. So in essence, it's a hotel for those that are interested in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space to not only create somewhere that's an oasis, as you say, but somewhere with like-minded people. Yes, and also for digital nomads. Don't don't let's let's don't remember don't forget about our brothers and sisters who are not involved in blockchain yet because they maybe don't heard about this one, don't understand it yet. Uh, so it's all about this this young people involved many times in tech or freelancers or these global citizens that can you know claim. There is a very interesting thing. I'm not sure you heard about this one, but I I'm, I'm heavily involved in this uh, space and I travel and. Uh, I know a lot of people in that space. And there is a, a lot of people, there is rumor about uh, some prophecy. Um, did you hear about this one? The, the, you know, I'm not sure it's true or not, but there is a lot of people that believe in it. And the prophecy pretty much says that there is a generation that will change the world, that will change the future of this world. And then very people said that we are this generation and this change, it's starting and happening right now. So if I would say for whom we do that or what will be, there, there is reinvention pretty much on every level. There is a reinvention of, of Amazon, of Google, like people building this decentralized, they, they disrupting the market. So if I would say what we're trying to do, we're reinventing also this part that was boring old school hotels using old bricks and 
concrete and they're you know using fossil fuel energy to power themselves and so do you have a token set up that yes. people can yes. can buy and if so what are they buying if they sure. buy tokens from sure. you there is a hybrid model and so pretty much every hotel is funded separately so uh, people can get on the equity of it, each hotel it depends on the investment we also have the uh, normal fractional ownership real estate model when they can get up to 60% dividend out of this revenue of that hotel so that's how the hotels are funded but on top of this there is something called index token that is a payment method in all of them and that is kind of utility token so they can pay for everything what they want. Electric jet skis, electric scooters, food, uh, accommodation. And so for, for, um, for uh, the, the, this payment method is obligatory in, in the hotels. Uh, so this is how we apply the, you know, the chain of hotels, it's not the $30 million project, right? It's, you know, one hotel, even innovative can cost $30 million. Uh, so yeah, but, but we do have this token, which is, you know, which is kind of utility, but also the, the pretty much uh, heavy investment with equity and, and, and dividends, which is 100% legal because it's real estate. And how far off are you from building the first hotel and where's the first location going to be at? Sure. So we selected uh, already buildings in Puerto Rico. We're going to start from city hotel. We have two kinds, paradise and city. Um, city where we select the building, we renovate that, we inject innovation and fun. So the, the buildings have been selected in Puerto Rico. Uh, we've been there, talked with government officials. Uh, right now we're finishing the designs on the, on the Puerto Rico. And after we finish the designs, it's getting to the architectural design. And uh, we raise money all the time anyway. Like for us, it's not one token sale and that's it. You know, there's a, there's, uh, so it's never stops for us because every project can be funded separately. So I think the, the soonest, uh, if we were going to be lucky, the, the soonest it can be done till the end of the year, the soonest in Puerto Rico, uh, till the end of 2018. Uh, if not, probably the first quarter of 2019, that's our timeline. And how much money have you raised so far for it all? Sure. So uh, in case of the token, uh, we raise uh, less than a million dollars. But in case of the other form of, of investments, um, we our, by ourselves we contribute, you know, almost five. Not even, you know, not even talking to our network. So um, and actually, right now we do prepare for the for the race of the. Uh, of the next one in case of equity equity model so it's it's going on and there's 21 people in, employed full time so it's pretty big team already handling a lot of operations a lot of things going on how much money do you need to raise minimum minimum for the city hotel minimum for puerto rico it's five and a half plus already you you need to be aware that the operation of this kind this kind of you know this size uh it's good to have Five and a half, it's hotel itself. You need to have around $1.5 million for running additional operations. So this is it. But for example, Paradise. So, so there's, as summing up, it's at, at least you have to have five and a half to start. Uh, but for the Paradise, like we present with off-the-grid solutions, Tesla batteries, you know, AI implementation, and, and the one that can accommodate 350 to 700 people, it, it, uh, it is evaluated for $32 million. But we are water independent, uh, and electricity independent, internet independent. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. 
It almost sounds like you're trying to create your own little nation. I think the nation is created already. Um, I don't think so. We have to reinvent that part. It's reinventing itself now. Um, but definitely, but definitely, the the places that can be oases or considered like paradises or you know that's that's that would be the the beautiful goal that is beautiful goal and um yeah so so more in more in this direction you're very passionate about the space where does all this passion come from i mean the blockchain space or hotel space both <laughs> um uh, that's actually a cool story i'm not sure how much time we have but uh i will try to make it very very short I got my first bitcoins for less than 200 bucks. Um, that's a funny story, but anyway. But I remember after I sold my first startup, um, I traveled for two years. Uh, I visit 37 countries and I stayed in many hotels, hostels, Airbnbs, even couchsurfing. And uh, I've seen like you know the most beautiful places have. Um, very poor standard for small amount of money, and f for to stay there in nice quality, you had to have you have to ha have to pay 500 bucks a night. Uh, and of course, as entrepreneur, it was obvious for me it can be done better, cheaper, faster. Um, so that was kind of the first first idea that uh, I had the desire to allow more people, more young people uh, that maybe are not that fortunate to to sell business, to be able to see Hawaii, Bahamas, you know, these kind of places that are absolutely beautiful in case of nature uh, and but very expensive at the same time so I think this combining with innovation and fun it's making this you know me be very passionate about that Edward Lobbit is the chief commercial officer at acorn collective a crowdfunding platform based on the blockchain I spoke to Edward to find out how it will all work so we're trying to change crowdfunding for conventional businesses. So this is really anyone who's got any startup idea. Um, essentially, the closest thing to us in the market at the minute is Kickstarter and Indiegogo. They're both reward crowdfunding platforms, and that's what we're looking to change. And what does Acorn offer that, say, Kickstarter doesn't? So there are three three areas really where we're we're um, trying to improve. The first one is access, so how people can access the platform. The second is success, and the third is transparency. So in terms of access, Kickstarter, for example, only operates in 22 countries. Um, so we are we want to be global. Um, it's a free to use uh, platform. Um, and also we've added more accelerator relationships as well. So the, the platforms that are out there at the moment kind of act in isolation. You can put your project on, fine, if it gets funded, if it gets funded. We've got quite a lot more in terms of a footprint of global uh, accelerator partners, people who can genuinely help you start a business in the country that you're in, um, and some education loops to help make the platform more accessible to you. So that's the first big difference, is actually being embedded in the startup community. The second thing is around um, success. So at the moment, 20% of um, crowd funds are successful, about 21%. And that's right from end to end. At the crowdfunding phase, um, only 66%, sorry, 66% fail. So that's because typically people are good at making their shoe, their bakery, their cafe, their whatever, their community project. They're not good at crowdfunding necessarily. So we have a crowdfunding engine in the middle of our platform that's essentially a digital marketing automation platform that helps people to be successful in their raise. We also have a blockchain transparency layer, which is the third thing. 
And that also builds trust between backers and founders. It helps us to deploy resources and milestones so people are doing what they say they're going to do. So it really is a very, very different type of platform. It has um, partners at the front that will help uh, the platform to be regional and supportive as an engine in the middle that helps you to actually raise your um, your crowdfund in an automated way um, based on real information and without having to be expert in crowdfunding and then it has a transparency layer to help build trust um, and make sure the backers and founders are talking to each other. Now your platform has a token as well. What does that token offer if people purchase it? Sure. So at this stage, the, essentially the, the token is pre-selling the marketplace. So backers come in and they purchase the token. So crowdfunding is actually quite an expense, expansive idea for something like that. Um, what that means is that every founder that comes on finds backers. Um, so all of those people are engaged in, in finding new people, new people to buy the token. So it's a naturally expansive proposition for a token. Um, in terms of the, um, the token itself, the cap is uh, 40, uh, is 40 million. Um, there's a 40% company allocation within that. We've already sold out our pre-sale. Um, and the, the team that we have uh, include people who've already built global crowd, crowdfunding platforms before. So I suppose in terms of a proposition, it's an expansive idea. It's genuinely change, changing something that's new. Um, crowdfunding itself will overtake VC funding over the next year or two is the main way that um, the, the startups get funded. So it's an opportunity to be part of an expansive idea for a token with a reliable team in a hugely growing market. And is the platform live? Can businesses already apply to fund no, their so ventures? No, so we're, we're, we're building the MVP at the moment and it'll be ready towards the end of the year. So uh, but we do have a full-time dev team um, and we do have, as I said, people on the team who've, uh, who've built things like this before. Eran Iyal is the CEO and co-founder of Shopin, which has created the first decentralized shopper profile built on the blockchain to help deliver a personalized shopping experience. During both its public and private pre-sale, it's raised more than 40 million US dollars. I spoke to Aaron to explain how it all works. At Shopin, we build a universal shopper profile where we work with retailers to give you three to five years of all of your purchase data back so that you can have the most personalized experience in every application, website, and physical store that you visit uh, while staying in total control of your data. And a cryptocurrency, so that whenever time you receive an ad or you are engaged by the retailer, then you receive the cryptocurrency um, to spend back in the world of retailer, in the world of retail, which means that we're, for the first time, we're giving all the capital for receiving ads back to the users, since it's your data. Has there been any concern regarding data privacy, especially in uh, light of what's uh, happened with Facebook in the past few weeks? That's a great question. Actually, uh, if you were watching, um, uh, you know, there's Fortune.com have a show called, uh, I think, The Distributed Ledger, if I'm not mistaken. They were actually, um, they actually mentioned us on TV as the solution to Facebook, uh, to Facebook's data issues. Why is that, though? Because we do a couple of really interesting things. We work with retailers, first of all, to give you back all your purchase data. So it's not behavioral data of the sorts that, um, you know, let's go back a second. You know, why does the problem exist? Well, think about when you look at a retailer. Each retailer has a little bit of data on you. And this very important data is called purchase data. It's data that can't be falsified, and it's data where we truly understand what it is that you buy. 
they don't have enough of it. It's like having the single page of your diary. And since I don't have the rest of the pages out of your diary and I can't seem to get them, what I'll do is I'll hire a bunch of creepsters to follow you around the internet and other places and collect more supposed data on you. And then you know, some of those people aren't even good at doing their job, so we go and we buy some data on you from other people who've been collecting it for a while. And then we bring it all together, we mishmash it into a bit of a Frankenstein profile for you and you suddenly find out that you're being targeted for things that aren't anything to do with you. This is no surprise because there's no version of the world where Adidas and Nike will share purchase data with each other because they're mortal enemies. But when you look at what you're wearing today, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that all of these items that you're wearing are from different retailers, right? Yep. So wouldn't it, for you to have a truly great experience, they have to be able to identify you. And only 7% of retailers can identify the user across multiple channels of devices. So if we give all the data back to the, re- to the user, a few interesting things happen when you put this onto a blockchain. Number one, the data doesn't become, the data is no longer hackable. So you don't have a situation like in the last week that Sears, Lord and Taylor, Saks Fifth Avenue, Delta, Uber, all got hacked. So that was, that's not going to happen. The second component is that you're the owner of your data now, and the rightfully so, since it's your data and it's purchase data, so it's highly, highly reliable. And then when you arrive on the website of a retailer, you log in with your shop and login. And they can call it different things, by the way. They can rename it to concierge for Balenciaga or whatever. You know? But you log in with your shop and login. And the product recommendations become representative of three to five years of your purchase data. This is where part of the magic happens. We have got artificial intelligence that sits on the website of the retailer driving that product recommendation. That artificial intelligence is distributed and decentralized. And in real time, what it does is it visually and through NLP com- um, looks at the inventory of the retailer and compares the inventory of the retailer or the publisher to your data and only displays the results, which means now they get the kind of data, which is literally the competitor's data, the full view of the user, but never knowing the data. It's like a Nirvana state of data that you never, it just works. So you're in that state that you understand the user and you don't need to be asking lots of questions and you don't need to be gathering data surreptitiously or restoring it into a centralized database that can be hacked. And at no stage is the data nonetheless of competitive retailers um, appearing with one another. Now think about publishing. We can be doing this for publishing. It's not just retail that we're targeting. If we have all your purchase data, imagine the kind of quality of content that can be displayed to you whilst never revealing your data. What are some of the retailers that you're working with if you're able to disclose that? Unfortunately, I can't disclose. That's, uh, I can tell you in some loose terms that we've been approached by some payment processes to work closely with them to beach at us in different territories. One of them represents 3,000 retailers and uh, 20 million users. When we think about going about this business, we don't just look to be working with, um, you know, I mean, we, we're sitting and talking, by the way, to everyone from Louis Vuitton to Tommy Hilfiger, you name it. You know, all, all those people are in negotiation discussions or some of them, one or two of them sign deals with us as well. We look at these partnerships or we just, um, we're proud to tell you, I don't know if you were in the hall early on today, but we actually announced today, we've just closed the partnership and we're announcing it today with Marvin Traub. Uh, with Tra- Traub and Traub Capital represents the most significant uh, consultant to the world of retail globally today. And um, Morty Singer, the um, CEO and founder of Marvin Traub uh, Associates, joined our board today. And they made a participation in the token generation event. And we've partnered together to educate the world of retail. So when we look at these kind of partnerships to, to accelerate. 
And when it comes to your token, people that have bought it or people that would like to buy it, what does it offer? What are they buying? Sure. So when you look at our token, um, we like to think of our token as a commodity. It has a very specific use case. Um, the usage of the token is that whenever a retailer wants to engage your attention and send you an advert, or to incentivize you to bring the, your friends over to join them, that's a great way you know, to join a retailer, a friend of yours to recommend, that's always the best. Um, or to share content, to engage with content, um, any of these kind of things. Or even use the visual AI app to take photos of things that you like and automatically you'll receive adverts for, the, for similar products from retailers that you've authorized. Whenever the, your attention is engaged in this way, you will be paid. Instead of Facebook or, uh, Facebook or Google or those kind of people being paid, you'll be paid for the, uh, for the advertising revenue. 100% of the advertising revenue goes to you, the user, and gets paid in a shop in shopping cryptocurrency. You can then come take that cryptocurrency and spend it in the world of retail or participating retailers with your fiat. So you can pay fiat, as were like your cash, your credit card, PayPal, whatever it is, along with your shop and cryptocurrency. And there's no big mathematical, you know, tomfoolery that you need to play in your in your head to figure out what the shop and token is worth. It's what's worth what it's worth on the exchange on the day. So if you've got fifty dollars of tokens, fifty dollars of tokens, it doesn't matter which retailer you go to, it's fifty dollars of tokens. Unless the retailer decides I'm gonna give you a small multiple on it. Maybe I'm gonna give you ten percent extra on that token to come redeem it with me. Maybe that token will get you a special experience like meeting our chief creative officer um, or get into your, or be able to buy certain things that you couldn't buy if you didn't have tokens. There's a lot of things like that. So when you look at it, really what we're building essentially is a protocol for personalization, for understanding the user, and um, a new type of circular economy of finance and personalization and data between the only two people should be involved in the conversation, which is either the, which is the publisher or the retailer and the user. Aaron, I believe you've tested your platform with two major retailers. Can you tell me how that went? Absolutely. So we tested with a high-end men's suiting brand, as well as a major um, retailer in the US for uh, home goods. So two very different verticals, each one for 30-day pilots. And during that time, we saw 12% of their database join up, which means that we um, saw 719,000 users join up collectively from these two retailers within 30 days. Um, and what was really interesting is that we saw that the users who went back to the retailer's page where we were serving these product recommendations, we saw a 22% uplift in transactional conversion. Now, a behavioral marketing company on its best day, best, best day, will do 3 to 4%. We're talking about double digits, increases in transactional conversions when people see the right thing that is right for them and they have a very quick process to check out. And uh, what's interesting about that is also we raised uh, $14.7 million of revenue for, for those two retailers. In 30 days alone? Correct, absolutely. Uh, from Bed Bath & Beyond, we had a half a million users join. And from uh, Xenia, we saw 130,000 users join. Kibek Kinde is the CEO and founder of Freedium, a cryptocurrency aimed at developing nations. I spoke to Kibek to find out his inspiration for founding it all. Well, uh, basically what inspired us to, to, to start Freedium was to try and find a solution using a disruptive technology such as the blockchain to address the fundamental issues challenging African developing countries in their economic growth. And those fundamental issues are basically four. First, you have a very weak banking sector in Africa, where, for instance, less than 20% of the adult population have access to bank accounts, and a fraction of that only has access to financing. The second point is that currencies in Africa are weak and volatile, 
like Nigeria, the biggest economy in Africa, saw its currency drop by 40% in 2016. As a result, when Africans want to trade with the rest of the world, they have to access hard currency, the dollar or the euro or the hard currency. And since 2008, with global de-risking and all international banks shutting down their correspondent banking business with African banks, it is almost mission impossible for African banks to have access to foreign currency. And the fourth point, which is also very important, is that African economy are commodity dependent. Some countries are 50% to 90% of the GDP coming from commodities. But since commodity owners don't have access to financing, it gives an opportunity to international trading houses to take advantage of these people. So we designed, using the blockchain, a solution to address all this problem in one go. You mentioned you're trying to create a stable cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency prices seem to be all over the shop, especially now. How can you guarantee that it will be a stable price always? Uh, there are two very important aspects with regard to Freedom Coin. The first aspect is that it's backed by a diversified uh, uh, group of commodities. So as such, uh, those commodities are not correlated to each other and it provides inherent stability to the currency. The second aspect is that we have developed a proprietary hedging strategy that allows us to maintain a stability versus the other hard currencies like the dollar. So you mentioned that people can uh, finance this currency with their assets to a degree, is that correct? Absolutely right. Let's say you own some commodities. You own a million dollar worth of cotton. You come to Freedom, we give you a million dollar worth of Freedom coin. I'm oversimplifying it, okay? And it's a digital currency that is backed. We take your, your cotton as a collateral. So it's backed by your cotton. And we do that with various people and the currency is backed by a diversified set of commodities. So with our edging strategy, we can say that in terms of value, our currency is always 100% back and we're tracking the global currencies. How prolific is blockchain in West Africa at the moment? Is it something that people are talking about in Australia, the US, Europe? People, you know, it seems to be talk of the town. Are people aware of how it all works? There is a lot of misconception about the blockchain, but people are generally interested in anything that can transform their lives. And today, it's very difficult to be a businessman or an entrepreneur in Africa with those constraints that I said. However, we don't use blockchain to actually create value out of nowhere. You know, we use blockchain to actually optimize financing processes that are well-known, such as warehouse financing, and to make them scalable and to make them available to all the people. And what are the government's thoughts on cryptocurrencies at the moment? Actually, uh, governments in Africa are very open to actually new currencies, digital currencies. You have a number of countries that have announced that they wanted a digital currency and so forth. So if you also look at other technologies, Africa has shown in many instances that it could be um, the fastest adopter of new technology. If you take mobile telecommunications, did you know that today you have more mobile wallets for mobile banking in Africa, twice as much in Africa than in the United States, and growing twice as fast? Why? Because in the US, you still have your bank. Everybody has a bank account. In Africa, if you don't have a bank account, you have to use something that works. You go to mobile banking. That's why we have twice as much mobile wallets in Africa than in the United States. And that's why we also are confident that this solution will very well be adopted in Africa very quickly. And how much money is being pumped into the freedom currency at the moment? Well, you know, when you talk about the freedom currency, basically all the commodities out there can be used to back a currency. 
And also, when you talk about target market, Africa is our starting place with looking at all developing and emerging economies. And guess what? That's 85% of the world population. That's 6 billion people. That's 60% of the world GDP. That's 80% of global growth since 2008. And that's $2.5 trillion of commodities per annum. So we have a lot of value to issue this new currency. The token itself, if uh, someone, say, in the United States or Europe wants to purchase it, what exactly are they purchasing? Are they purchasing the token to help sort of sustain the system in terms of sustaining the commodity-backed loans that you discussed earlier? No, actually, once the commodity, once the currency is issued, once you brought Sorry. me your million dollar worth of cotton and I gave you a million dollar of worth of freedom coin, then you have those coins. If you use them to actually buy things, those coins are now circulating. They're available on exchanges to buy either other cryptocurrencies or to be converted into fiat. So if you are a user, wherever you are in the United States or in Europe or in Africa, in the same way that you can buy Bitcoin, you can buy uh, you know, currency on exchanges. The token itself, is it live now? Could I go on an exchange and purchase it? Not yet. Uh, we uh, intend to go live uh, uh, at the end of the year. We are working now on a pilot case with uh, the leading uh, 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 free zone in the world uh, to actually apply it to some of the commodities um, uh, owners uh, that go through that uh, free zone. And then we intend to go live uh, by the end of the year. And Kipa, what inspired you to, to get into this space and start a cryptocurrency for West Africa? Well, um, it's a cryptocurrency not just for West Africa, not just for Africa, but for all developing economies. And what inspired me to actually do that is that after having been in investment banking, private equity, from the development side as well as the investment banking side for two decades, I came to the realization that to really transform Africa or developing countries, you needed something disruptive. And that disruptive thing is the blockchain. The blockchain allows you to optimize uh, uh, processes and to make them scalable. And that's why we focused on it to find a solution. Josh Sutton is the chief executive of Agarai, a marketplace for artificial intelligence. Here's Josh to explain how it all works. Agarai is a distributed marketplace for AI tools and data assets. The simple way to think about it is it's an app store for AI tools that businesses and individuals can access that can consume data that people contribute into the data marketplace, giving people access to AI and allowing people a path to monetize their data. So you're a platform for AI-based applications on the blockchain? Absolutely. So we are a, effectively a, a set of marketplaces that give people access to the tools that they need. And what we're really trying to disrupt is the fact that today, a very small set of companies control the AI assets and data assets that are driving a lot of innovation. So our ability to take that and put that in the hands of everybody around the world, we believe is going to be something that creates a lot of great results and outcomes and innovative opportunities that everybody around the world comes up with. Who are some of the major players that you're up against in this field? Well, if you look at the major players, it is really the Googles and IBMs and Amazons of the world but they're all centralized constructs. When you think about the players in the decentralized system, I think about almost everybody as partners rather than competitors. So you have your singularity nets that are trying to advance what can be done with AI. You have your um, you know, DBCs working at how to make computational costs lower. So there's a lot of great partners, and we actually announced two partnerships today. 
one with daddy, which is, you know, fog computing, which is really lowering that cost of compute and storage. And the other is with Ocean Protocol. And Ocean's doing tremendous work on how to actually leverage decentralized data and had done some really foundational work in partnerships with governments and auditors like PwC. When you mention the word data, a lot of people often get concerned regarding privacy. So what safeguards are built in Agarai for that? Well, that is part of why we're actually partnering with Ocean is we want to leverage the best thinking that's out there. But what we believe is that data should be owned by the creators of data. In the case of individual data, that means it should be owned by you and me. And the only way to do that is to leverage blockchain as a construct where people can see where their data is, have transparency into how it's being used, and understand exactly who's accessing it. I believe that the model of centralized companies owning data about us as individuals that we don't have access to is something that hopefully will become a thing of the past as we move forward in time. When it comes to the financials of the company, how much money has been put into Agarai at present? So we're raising a little over $100 million, and the majority of that is being used to acquire companies that will serve as the foundation of the marketplace so that there's value out of the gate for all of the corporate users. Um, we're well on our way to that, and we're structuring the raise as uh, something that is a pure security. So we're approaching it a little bit differently than most companies have and doing our utmost to be as compliant as is humanly possible in a world that is still somewhat unregulated. And does Agri have a token for sale as well? That We're selling our token via pre-sales and it is a security token. So if uh, one purchases the token, what exactly are they purchasing? What are they funding and where does the value from that token lie? So as it is stated as a security token, what you're purchasing is actually a stake in the company's revenue. So what we're providing for all of the holders of tokens is a 20% share of the revenue generated by the company. So it's a very explicit tie between the company's performance and the value creation that we enable and the value that gets passed along to the holders of the tokens. You likened it to the app store of AI. How many apps do you have on this platform at present? So we will be launching with a collection of um, 10 or so very specific applications targeting uh, the advertising industry and to a lesser degree financial services. We will then be launching at the end of the year our SDK that allows developers and innovators to start building their own solutions on that. So we envision it very quickly growing beyond the seed applications that we put on to a much larger set of applications that are contributed by the community. Much as I'd like to think that we could have everything, I think that the real power is in what the community can provide and what they add into the marketplace to distribute through it. Are there any other projects like this at present? There are not other projects that are doing exactly what we're doing. I think that what we're doing is taking a much more applied blockchain stance where most of the companies right now that I've seen and that we're looking to partner with are more protocol-based about how do I enable innovation in a specific area. What we're really trying to do is how do we bridge the gap between those innovators and the corporate clients of the world today that are willing to spend real money on that. So I, I hope that there will be more like us in the future, but right now I think we're relatively unique. And when it comes to your own history, what inspired you to first get into this space? So I spent uh, over 20 years at Sapient and then subsequently Publicis Group once Sapient was acquired. And 
I'd built a capital markets business that grew to be very substantial. And then for the last five years or so I was there, I was running AI and data for the company. And what I saw was tremendous potential about what could be done. And you know, I had very close ties with the largest companies on the planet, with the Googles and IBMs of the world. But what I also saw was a gap. And it was very difficult for me to figure out where the real innovation was, how I could find AI tools that could be used by the corporate world. So this really is filling a need that I wish I had when I was at Publicis. How do we actually create a construct where people can take their applications and have a distribution channel for them in a way that provides real value to corporate businesses. Wan Chain is one of the bigger cryptocurrencies in the blockchain sector with a market cap of more than 500 million US dollars. Dustin Byington is the president of Wan Chain, so I sat down with him to find out more about what Wan Chain has to offer. Wan Chain is rebuilding finance with private cross-chain smart contracts. Uh, our unique contribution to the space is our cross-chain technology that allows us to to connect any blockchain without them having to do any kind of soft fork or hard fork. It's very permissionless and uh, long-term we think it'll be very scalable. Um, uh, we're our, it's a standalone blockchain built, built upon the Ethereum code base. Uh, we did our mainnet launch in uh, February, and uh, what we launched was uh, the world's first smart contract platform with ring signatures. Uh, we'll be adding cross-chain to Ethereum uh, this summer, and then cross-chain to Bitcoin uh, sometime soon thereafter, probably before the end of uh, 2018. Can you just explain what a ring signature is? Sure. Uh, ring signatures have been around for quite some time. Uh, in the uh, crypto world, they're popularized by Monero. Um, and it's effectively a way of obfuscating uh, the the a transaction, uh, the breaking down the connection between the to and the from receiver. Um, so uh, you see the transaction, you see the amount, um, but you do not know uh, who whom received it. Um, it. You can't make a connection between who sent it and who received it because uh, the transactions get batched. Um, and so they get, you can think about them like it's like you, a bunch of people send in transactions and they go into like a washer uh, and then they get pushed out the other end. And so you can't match between the to and the from. But it's sorry, it's still auditable. Um, it, it, a lot of people question, you know, what's the difference between um, zk snarks? Um, zk snarks are, are extremely anonymous, which is great for some use cases, uh, but they're so anonymous that it makes it challenging to audit um, and to have trust in the underlying uh, transactions and technology. Now, your company has a token market cap of more than 500 million US dollars. What do you think's made it so popular? Uh, this year is kind of the year of uh, both uh, cross-chain and privacy, and uh, we check both those boxes. And so I think that's a, um, a big part uh, of the excitement of WanChain. Also, we have a, a very strong team of uh, blockchain veterans, including Jack Liu, who's the founder and CEO, and was a, he was a technical co-founder of Factum, uh, has been in the space for, for quite some time and is extremely well-networked in China. Uh, and that's really the last point, too, is uh, our unique contributions. We say we're cross-chain as well as cross-culture. And so uh, we're uniquely positioned because of foundations in Singapore and um, a strong presence in both, by a strong presence in both Beijing and Austin, Texas. You made an announcement here in Dubai a few days ago, launching your WANLAB, a blockchain accelerator service. Can you run me through what's that all about and what you hope it will achieve? Absolutely. What we believe strongly to be true is that our, our platform will be judged by the quality and quantity of applications built on top of it. 
And uh, it's not sufficient to just put the platform out there and, and hope that people will come and build on top of it because the, the future of finance is at stake. And so we're taking a very direct uh, role in helping uh, build uh, and develop these applications. And uh, that's what WANLAB is about, is helping these, uh, these founding teams that have really strong, um, you know, for example, industry expertise and strong visions, but uh, lack the, the knowledge about uh, building on blockchain. So what we can do is we can provide that to them, and it's a really strong combination that's building some, resulting in some very powerful applications. Can you run me through some of the companies that you've already signed on to your WAN Lab Accelerator program? Sure. One of them is uh, a project called Freedium, uh, which is a stablecoin targeted at uh, the continent of Africa uh, with the goal, ambition of, of providing financial inclusion uh, to the continent by first giving them sound money. Uh, we think that the sound money is really the, the root cause of a lot of uh, the problems with financial inclusion. For example, people won't trade cross-border because they don't trust each other's money, or people don't want to save so they don't need access because their money is being debased, and so they just spend it. Um, and so we need to find really the root causes of providing people sound money. And there's also a big need for, you know, stable coins within the cryptocurrency community for people that want to, you know, take risk off, but uh, don't want to sell into fiat. Uh, and so we've created a really unique stable coin that has a, a novel design that's kind of a combination of, of MakerDAO, but with a commodity backed collateral. You're quite the figurehead in the blockchain community globally. Where did your inspiration for the space first come from and what's your background in this sector? Uh, my interest in uh, Bitcoin was really marked by uh, my, um, uh, my career in finance. Uh, I started my career at Goldman Sachs in 2007, one year before the financial collapse. And uh, so living through that, uh, really, when I found Bitcoin and was on my entrepreneur journey, I left finance and was starting businesses. And then I found Bitcoin and I thought it was almost like a PTSD moment. And all those memories of, you know, walking through people like hand in hand around the Goldman building that like, you know, all those like terrible thoughts and memories that came rushing back and I was like, wow, this is like, there's actually something here where we can, we can actually fix this like massively broken industry. Um, and, uh, you know, we were, then I started a number of different businesses with Bitcoin and, um, uh, and some low level technology businesses. Um, and uh, there's, you know, I, I came to really understand a lot of the, the limitations of some of these other technologies. And uh, when I, you know, when Jack Lou and I have a um, background because we're both from Austin, Texas, and um, I know him well from our, my early days in crypto. And, um, and so when he called me and reached out and I was very interested in what he was working on because I have so much respect for him personally. And then the more and more I, I, I learned about what WanChain was doing with their cross-chain technology, the more I thought like, man, this is really that kind of solution that I've been looking for that can really materially impact the financial services industry. And just lastly, do you have any thoughts on the current state of the market? We've seen prices of Bitcoin, Ethereum fall quite dramatically. Do you see that just as a little bump in the road or are we heading further down the cliff? Uh, I like to take uh, a long-term approach on things. Uh, Jeff Bezos is sort of famed for, he's like the seven-year roadmap. Um, and that, that allows him to be uh, competitive in the industry because everyone else is like thinking quarterly. So, and uh, I think especially in this industry, a uh, huge competitive advantage by thinking long-term. Um, and uh, what I see in the long-term is these are, in this industry, there's going to be tens of trillions of dollars moving over these rails that we're building. And so these like quarterly fluctuations to me are, are immaterial. Um, I really just kind of just keep going back to work. I don't, I don't spend all day looking at Blockfolio and CoinMarketCap. Uh, we just keep building stuff. And uh, I think that's going to work out well for WanChain in the long term. 
Mance Harmon is the co-founder and CEO of Hedera Hashgraph. Hedera provides an alternative to the blockchain, so I'll let Mance explain more about how it all works and some of its use cases. Hashgraph is a consensus algorithm, a piece of technology. It's an alternative to blockchain. Lehman Baird, Dr. Lehman Baird, my co-founder, invented it in 2015. In 2012, Lehman had a vision for how the internet should work, how that people should be able to sort of reach out and carve out a, a piece of cyberspace. And within that Within that piece of cyberspace, people should be able to work together and to play together and to buy and sell goods and services together without having to trust their data and privacy to a third party, which is the way the world works today. And he went to work on a, to try and solve that problem fundamentally. And he had a big breakthrough in 2015, and that's today what we call Hashgraph. So, so Hashgraph is an alternative to blockchain with superior properties in terms of performance and security. And it's also got other properties that the blockchain doesn't have, like uh, fairness, uh, which, which is uh, making it possible to do things that you can't otherwise do. Hedera Hashgraph is a company that is using Hashgraph, the technology, to build a public platform that will compete with um, the other public platforms in the market. And it's providing uh, two things, really. A, a technology layer that is, is superior in terms of performance and security, as well as a governing council, a governance model that doesn't exist today in the market, that represents all of the constituencies uh, across sectors and geographies uh, in, in, in all the major markets. So, for example, um, when comparing Hashgraph, Hedera Hashgraph, to the existing platforms, Bitcoin, of course, can process about five transactions per second. Ethereum can process about 15 transactions per second. And it takes a long time for the community to come to agreement on the order of those transactions. In Bitcoin's case, it takes an hour or longer to come to agreement. With Hedera Hashgraph, we've demonstrated hundreds of thousands of transactions per second with just seconds of consensus latency, which is just fantastic performance. It's the difference between a calculator and a computer, uh, not just in performance, but in what you can do with it. The, you know, the range of applications that you can build on such a platform is much broader than what you could build on a platform that can process, say, 15 transactions per second. So, so on the performance side, it's fantastic. On a security side, it's, it achieves the best security that one can achieve in the world of distributed consensus. It's something called asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance, and it does so at scale. And what this means practically is that uh, the platform is resilient to certain kinds of distributed denial of service attacks that, that the other platforms aren't. Finally, so, so that's performance and security. It's different than the rest of the market also in terms of stability. We're able to make some guarantees to the market that this platform will not fork into a competing platform and associated cryptocurrency, which often causes chaos and is one of the factors that business managers have to consider when deciding whether or not they're going to spend a lot of money building an application on a public platform. It, it, it causes people not to adopt when they fear that if they build an application, 12 months from now, the platform may split 
and that causes chaos and now you're not sure exactly what's going to happen. Well, the Hashgraph algorithm is patented and the way in which we're using that patent is to bring stability to the platform while at the same time uh, ensuring transparency. The source code will be released for public review and open innovation. There's no requirement to get a license to use the platform. You can just build whatever you want without ever, ever even talking to us. And then, and then finally is the governing council. And so who's going to manage this code base, this, this organization and the changes that are made to the code? We are creating a council of 39 global blue chips that represent 18 sectors of business, and they're all geo-distributed. This is not a U.S.-based company. Uh, this, these are companies that are represented around the world. They're the very largest and most trusted brands in the world, and they're providing expertise for the management of the platform, uh, all parts of the organization. This represents the most distributed governance model that I've seen in the market today. And you combine that with the fact that anybody can run a node in this network, and we expect to have hundreds of thousands of nodes participating in the network on a global basis. That also represents the most distributed consensus network. So both in terms of governance and consensus, we believe this is the most distributed platform in the market today with the best technology. I just want to touch upon something you said with security. You said the platform can protect against DDoS attacks. How? Well, so there are different kinds of consensus algorithms. You can sort of break them down into two categories of algorithms. Proof-of-work blockchain, which is what most of us talk about, those are used in the public networks, like Bitcoin, for example, and, and Ethereum. The, um, and then there are leader-based algorithms that are normally used in the, um, you know, in the permission networks, like Hyperledger and Corda. And there are various ways to, if it's the case that there is a leader or the consensus algorithm itself depends on uh, synchronous processes or timeouts or that sort of thing, then it's possible to devise a DDoS attack that will prevent the network from coming to consensus, prevent it from working the way it's supposed to. There's a level, a sort of a gold standard in the world of distributed consensus called asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance. And what that means is that there are no leaders, there are no synchronous processes, no timeouts, no opportunity to create DDoS attacks in the same way that you can for other algorithms in the market. And to at the same time provide guarantees, proofs, formal mathematical proofs that the network will come to consensus. And that's what we achieve. We achieve asynchronous BFT uh, at scale uniquely in the market. And can you just run me through some of the use cases for Hedera? Who are you expecting to come on board and start building on your platform? Yeah. Well, so I, I think one of the first killer apps is going to simply be the uh, cryptocurrency application running on the platform that directly supports micropayments. So if it's possible to pay a fraction of a cent to somebody, economically, I mean, then you can enable entirely new business models. Uh, for example, if we had a web browser with a wallet built into it and the ability to pay a thousandth of a penny, then when I browse the Wikipedia 
website, perhaps I'm paying a thousandth of a penny for every wiki article that I read. Well, I as a consumer would love that. I'm fine paying for the service that I'm getting from Wikipedia, but that makes it possible for Wikipedia to have an ongoing revenue stream and not have to beg for money every January just to stay afloat, right? So micropayments as a capability uh, is, is a huge uh, opportunity to change business models in the market. You can't do micropayments directly today with Bitcoin. If the cost per transaction is 20 to $30, then it makes absolutely no sense to you know, pay a fraction of a penny with a $20 fee. So you have to eliminate proof of work uh, in order to do micropayments directly on the graph, not with some extra infrastructure that is less secure. Doing micropayments directly on the network is the most secure way of doing it, and we're enabling that. And will Hedera have its own cryptocurrency, and if so, where will its value come from? Yes, so absolutely. The, the platform, the first version of the platform is going to support three different services. There is the uh, cryptocurrency service with native support for micropayments. There is distributed file storage, and then there are smart contracts. We've taken the Ethereum virtual machine with support for Solidity and put it directly on top of the Hedera platform. Uh, the fundamental value of the token uh, associated with the cryptocurrency is in what the market is willing to pay for those services. So when developers build applications that use the platform, with every API call, every time they call the cryptocurrency service or store a file or use a smart contract, at the same time, they make a micropayment for the use of the API. And what the market is willing to, to pay for those micropayments, that represents the fundamental value associated with the token that is associated with the platform. And just finally, can you run me through your own background? How did you first become interested in this space? Yeah, well, so Lehman Baird and I have been working together for 25 years. We have deep technology background. We started off doing research in machine learning for the US Air Force senior scientists for machine intelligence. We taught computer science at the Air Force Academy. I was a course director for cybersecurity. I managed a massive software program for the Missile Defense Agency. Uh, a war games program to protect its uh, assets and allies from incoming ballistic missiles. And we've done two startups as well in the space of identity. Sold one to a Fortune 500 and another one to private equity. In 2012, Lehman went to work on solving this problem, the problem of distributed consensus at scale. And he had a vision, a vision for how the internet should work. Specifically, a vision that makes it possible for people to carve out a chunk of cyberspace and within that piece of cyberspace play together or work together or buy and sell goods and services without the need to trust their identity and privacy to a third party to, um, to be secure in that way. And, and then he had a breakthrough in 2015, which is today what we call the hash graph. And, uh, you know, we recognized the value of the technology and decided to, to go to market with it. And, and that's how we got to where we are today. Alex Zdrilko is a co-founder of OSA Decentralized, an AI-driven blockchain platform for retailers. So here's Alex to explain how it all works. 
OSA, it stands for on-shelf availability. And basically what does our system do? Uh, it's uh, uh, So basically it's big data platform powered by artificial intelligence and based on blockchain. And what problems is it solving? Why did you create it? So basically the retail uh, industry loses approximately $500 billion uh, per year. And $400 billion it's because of out of stocks or out of shelves. And then about $100 billion it is product waste. And uh, why? Why it's happening? Because of lack of transparency between retailers and manufacturers and on top of this lack of trust. And what we do, uh, our OSA decentralized, uh, it's basically unite producers, retailers and also we are in involving consumer uh, with its blockchain-empowered solution. So uh, to improve retail and to upgrade existed current retail uh, with our solution and with our platform. And does your platform have a token as well? Yeah, definitely we have OSA token. We issue OSA token. Uh, for, so basically we developed the OSA ecosystem where a lot of parties like consumers, retailers, manufacturers, distributors, uh, also logistic companies are involved. So the whole supply chain. And on top of this, uh, there are also third parties providers like uh, data scientists, like uh, computation power providers, like supply chain providers and stuff. Uh, so basically many third parties as well. To enable this our ecosystem uh, work properly, what we do, we introduced OSA token. And OSA token has three main roles. The first one is uh, fuel, so it's fuel for our basically ecosystem uh, to enable all the services work properly. The second one is payment, so to enable the millions and billions of microtransactions in, in retails and in our ecosystem. And the third, the most important one, is reward. So reward, uh, basically just imagine if you go to the store and you capture the whole data with your smartphone as a consumer and you are in our application uh, with your food preferences in it, then uh, we want also to establish the share base uh, economy with our consumers. So we reward them for uh, basically capturing this data and providing to us this data. And how many retailers are you currently working with? Do you have anyone already signed up to use your platform? Yeah, definitely. Now uh, we are a uh, successful existed business. We work with 26 uh, customers uh, in Russia. Uh, amongst our customers uh, from the retailer size, it can be Metro Cash and Carry, X5 Retail Group, Magnet, which is two biggest, you know, X5 and Magnet. Also, we work with Ocean and many others. If we just talk about the manufacturers, so uh, within manufacturers, we have also signed contracts with PepsiCo, with Coca-Cola, with Mars, with Danone, with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, L'Oreal and also many other customers. So basically around 26 customers. And how much money have you raised to date? So basically now we raised uh, 1.8, we just started uh, private pre-sale, uh, it is a bit more than one week, we raised 1.8 million dollars and uh, uh, now we are basically coming to the 26th of April when we will run public pre-sale. And can you just further explain how it all works, say I go to a, a supermarket and the supermarket has run out of coke, what does your platform offer to make sure that that problem won't happen again? 
Yeah, we are integrating into the supermarket system. Basically, it's uh, we integrating into the tills, uh, and also we receive all the tills data in real time. Then, uh, basically, we integrate in the warehouse data, transit, uh, the whole supply chain, and then we created uh, big data uh, powered by artificial intelligence. And what it does? So uh, the main thing that we have more than 30 different algorithms uh, from more than 100 different sources. We are analyzing this like weather condition for example uh, if it is raining today then uh, soft drinks cells are you know minor comparing to the sunny day or if uh, let's say coca-cola has a discount promotion uh, and discount by 50 percent then definitely you cannot expect the same level of sales from pepsi-cola and all this is taken into account and then uh, we are providing to retailers and uh, to uh, our manufacturers uh, with whom we signed the agreement uh, data what should be done to improve the situation so basically it's about merchandising it's about pricing because not correct just you know pricing tax uh, definitely can reduce the sales and uh, create you know uh, create overstock or out of stock on shelves. Then also the big problem is, uh, we call it uh, the problem of the last mile. So what is it? Uh, many products are in warehouse, but it's not supplied to the shelves. And, uh, you know, in some categories, it's like 70% of the issue is in this. So basically we need to push sell stuff in the shops to take the product and to bring the product from the warehouse to the shelves and to start selling. And what's your own personal background? How did you get into this space? So my personal background is retail. I have uh, more than 10 years experience in uh, multinational companies. So basically I worked from the manufacturer side and I know how it works from the inside, uh, the whole supply chain and the whole you know, cooperation between retailers and manufacturers. What do you think the end game for all this is? Do you hope to one day sell OSA to a, a big company or where do you see it going? No, we, we want to develop this business. Uh, we do not think, uh, you know, to sell it because there is a big potential. Now we are targeting 5K markets for us. It is Japan, uh, Korea, China, US and Russia. And there are a lot of countries around the world. So with our hard cap, what we're going to, you know, to raise now, we want to cover these five countries to realize our product catalog and to realize our also consumers uh, application. So basically it's like consumer application with the food preferences and then consumers can rate and leave the feedback uh, and leave the feedback about the products or ingredients of the products and then basically uh, this all ratings and this whole feedbacks will be recorded on the uh, and hashed on the blockchain so nobody can change it and nobody can manipulate with this so it will be the most fair rating uh, and then our strategy is when we realize this product in these five you know pillar markets then we go to all the rest countries and we have you know work for maybe if you know, 100, 150 years. 